and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. With me tonight is Jonathan, or Johnny, or John. John, tell me a little bit about yourself. Hey, DJ. Thank you very much for uh, having me on, first of all. It's an absolute pleasure being here. Um, So I'm actually hailing from London, Ontario, Canada. I think I'm the first Canadian on. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. And I brought a crowd. I did bring a crowd. Um, yeah, so I, I've been doing um, a lot of uh, small um, video work since about 2003, I think I started doing that. I, I came from a background in, in special effects, makeup, and animatronics and stuff like that. Um, I, that's what I actually went to school for. And then, uh, yeah, I kind of didn't – I love that, the art of it, but not, not really the, the act of doing it uh, as employment. So then I jumped into uh, – did my first Pan- Panasonic uh, DVX 100, 100B, 100A, what was it, B? I can't remember now. Um, but yeah, I bought one of those and the rest is history. Moved into DSLRs and yeah, I've been doing that ever since. Loving cinematography and narrative and a lot of commercial work to pay the bills. So a question I ask uh, uh, most of the people that have been coming on is uh, what camera is in your bag right now? Actually, right now where I am, I am sticking with the uh, crop sensor Canon cameras. I've got a 60D and uh, my trusty old unstoppable T2i. You know, uh, I still have a couple of T2i in my collection, and yeah. every time I look at selling them, I look at the price on eBay, and I think I might as well just keep this and continue yeah. to use it because there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> that's exactly it, and that's that's exactly my thinking. Uh, before uh, we roll into the news, you know, that's one thing uh, new filmmakers need to really think about is if you don't have a lot of money, maybe don't. Go for the 5D Mark III or one of these really expensive yeah. cameras. Go for a T2i. They're they're like a buck fifty solid on eBay right now, and then save that extra money, that extra couple grand you just spent, and buy a bunch mm-hmm. of really awesome lenses. You got it. That's and that's that's exactly what I would recommend too, and that's what I did. I mean, I, things are coming down all the time, uh, as we'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, I mean the T2i. You got your, you got guys like uh, like the uh, infamous Kendi Tai there in in France, who's cranking out amazing looking films. Oh yeah, um, you, you know, looking like Ari Alexa footage on his T2i with one lens. So it, you know, it's all about storytelling. You know, when it and it doesn't matter what sensor you have, as long as you pay attention to the light, your white balance, yeah. and the regular bits that involve your normal everyday shooting. Don't push yeah. your camera too hard. Don't go past what the sensor is able to do, and if you maintain those rules of thumb, you can really create some awesome stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. That's that, it's all about uh, you know getting educated on on the basics of of filmmaking and cinematography, and then uh, letting the, the gear do the work uh, afterwards. You know what I mean? Uh, speaking of work, let's get into the news. Right. All right. First up on the reports here is uh, the Verge reports that Panasonic is introducing a pair of palm-sized 4K camcorders. We've got the WX970 and the WX870. Both these cameras have the ability to shoot UHD internally and feature a one-half inch uh, backlit sensor. This is a little bit new technology. gives you a little bit better low-light performance by changing the way the pixels are made. It also has 20x zoom and an f1.8 Leica lens. The only difference between the 970 and the 870 is that one has a rear-facing camera. Panasonic seems to be calling this the twin camera mode. Apparently, you can shoot yourself while shooting someone else. Uh, that gives you uh, the 970 feature, and that's an extra $100 over the 870, which has all those features minus the rear-facing camera. What do you think about this? Are people still using point-and-shoot cameras with uh, cell phones and everything? Do we need 
another camcorder like this? Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking as I as I kind of read over this. Uh, this is really weird timing for for Panasonic. I kind of thought. I mean, you know, you can. Uh, I, I've got kids. Uh, the biggest you know reason to have a camcorder, I guess, would be kids. Uh, in the last five years, um, which is old, uh, as old as my oldest uh, child, I have never seen a camcorder come out at a, uh, a birthday party, which is one of the places that you'd probably see something like this. Because I don't know if pros are going to be, I don't know if they're going to be shooting with. I wouldn't shoot with this. I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, spend the money on this. So uh, I, I just, I, I don't know where Panasonic's coming coming from with with this. Uh, like you said, you can take out your you know, your new iPhone or your new Android phone and uh, kind of do the same things. Uh, you know, you've, you've already got your twin camera mode. It's, it's the been other there for a while. weird thing that's going on with this is um, this is $1,000 and didn't Panasonic just release a point and shoot that had a really decent lens and it was a micro four third sensor that was also able to shoot 4K <laughs> internally. And I believe it was priced in the 550, 560 range. That's very true. I didn't even, uh, that kind of slipped by me there. Yeah, you're right. Um, and so I, then it becomes a question of how is this a compelling product? It does offer a weird mode, um, HDR mode, which you mm-hmm. don't see in very many cameras. And in fact, um, I linked in the show notes to a demo because Red was the first one to come out with that. And while HDR is a cool thing, it's really a very specific look. I don't know how many people are really uh longing for an hdr look in their regular video footage yeah and i mean and it re- like reading the the report there uh they even mentioned that the hdr mode wasn't that great you know it was kind of kind of muddy didn't really wasn't really all that impressive um so they went out of their way to say that so i i, I don't know i just uh not something that i'm really interested in uh i don't really see the need for it right now or or I, i'm not sure who they're marketing it to well, even the 120 frames per second at uh, 1080p, the mm-hmm. uh, GH4 and some of their uh, middle-of-the-line point-shoot cameras are offering 96 frames. While 120 is more than 96, it's not significantly enough more that the slow motion would really push you in that direction either, would it? No. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, you know. It, it's a hard sell at $1,000, I think. It, oh, yeah, that's the thing. And, and plus, I mean, aren't. Our, our cell phones, uh, some of the cell phones, they already have 120 frames. I don't know if it's at 1080p, is it? Uh, some cell phones do have uh, 1080p and high frame rates. Uh, Samsung even has a few uh, 4K phones out there. And I've actually go. talked to a few people that are shooting on them, which is surprising. Mm-hmm. But uh, they say that you can just set it up back behind you and get some great behind the scenes. So, Yeah, I mean, that that's true. And especially with all these um, ultra small cameras. Uh, uh, HD camera gimbals coming out, you know, like the one-handed uh, gimbals for phones and GoPros and things like that. Uh, you know, you might you might see people using their phones even more so in the future. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, uh, I believe it's Nebulous Four Thousand. Yes, things yes. like six ninety nine, and mm-hmm. it's pretty sexy for uh, light camera applications. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, getting into the more expensive one, the the Ronin. Uh, just coming out with their own like that's their own i'm trying to find it here as we're talking but uh it's just got their own camera on it right and you use your your cell phone as the as the screen yeah i believe that's correct um they've also well this is kind of off subject from that but uh did you see dji's release of the uh sale price on some of the new flyers that come with their built-in camera they're like uh they're under a thousand dollars now 
and oh really yeah and they're really sexy um dgi's <laughs> been doing some really good stuff and they've been really advancing the whole quadcopter systems they've been taking advantage of a lot of the auto landing and auto control systems so that people don't yeah. run them into walls <laughs> which i've seen I've oh seen man <laughs> i was on a shoot uh um a couple months back and this guy showed up and he had just spent six thousand dollars on a brand new quadcopter and he was flying a gh4 and he had a wide angle lens on there uh, and he didn't realize that the wide angle lens made things look further away than they actually were and so he <laughs> drove his six thousand dollar quadcopter into a wall and, and dropped the camera and the copter about 10 feet and I mean, wow. luckily it was only 10 feet, but still, I think he was telling me he did maybe two grand worth of damage to it. So, oh, yeah, whew. yeah, I, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'll, if, when I get into the whole buying my own drone to, to use, I'll probably start with something very inexpensive looking at the, the parrot, uh, something like that, you know, I'm not re- more concerned of learning how to fly it properly without damaging it every other week. Than, than uh, you know, resolution or anything like that. I'll tell you right now, um, <clears throat> and this goes for everybody out there, if you are interested in getting a drone, before you go out and spend the money and start flying one in real life, buy the controller first because you can go on Amazon mm-hmm. and for about 70 bucks you can buy just the drone controller. It's got a USB port in it or Bluetooth, and you can hook it up to your computer and run it on a flight simulator. And you can set wind, you can set... Uh, um, all kinds of different things for the atmosphere that you're working in. And you can just practice on this drone with a mock wide angle lens of whatever setting and caliber you'd like and crash it as many times as you want until you get comfortable flying it. Then once you've done that and you've logged maybe, you know, 20 or 30 hours and you, you feel like you're really good at it, then go buy the real thing because you don't want to practice on your expensive <laughs> item. You want to practice on the flight simulator. Trust me. That's right. That's right. Have you done that? Uh, yeah, I have actually. Um, okay. That's when I realized that I was not a drone operator. <laughs> I did 20 hours in the simulator and I could keep it up about 75% of the time. And while that's pretty good, that's not good enough to where I would risk any valuable equipment in there. I'd put a yeah. GoPro maybe, but not <laughs> anything heavier than that. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, I've had, I've had some brave friends that have... Uh, that have gone through a couple of, uh, you know, two or three phantom twos, uh, in the last six months, well, just cause I mean, one crash and they're like, you know, I might as well, uh, I'll keep it for parts and I might as well buy another one. Cause the parts are going to cost me that much anyway. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, they do sell, uh, several smaller, they're, they're basically made out of, of wood frame and they're not designed to hold much of a camera, but the whole body and everything is under 250 bucks. Oh, really? And if you get one of those, because all of the parts are made out of wood, you just go to the hardware store, cut another piece of, of wood for the section, and then glue it back on again and keep going. So maybe that's <laughs> like a middle ground between the flight simulator and really having one. Yeah. yeah. And, really. <laughs> and they have tricopters and quadcopters, and you can buy the kits to assemble them yourself for under $250 on, on eBay right now. So that's definitely a really interesting way to go. Those aren't designed for a ton of weight. The other thing you need to watch out for if you're a quadcopter flyer and you're just starting out is the batteries those things use are dangerous, man. Um, They sell them with the sleeve for a reason. When you're charging them, (laughs) charge them inside the sleeve. I've seen two tables burn to the ground because somebody was charging them and the battery got a little bit too hot or something happened and it burned down the whole table there. Luckily, their house didn't burn down, but I mean, it was only a hop skipping away, you know. 
Wow, I've n- I've never heard of that. That's uh, that's scary. Yeah, the uh, the type of battery because it has to supply so much amperage to the yeah. motors. That's why you only have fifteen to twenty minute max flight times for these quadcopters. It's because it has to just put out a ton of current in a small package. Well, yeah. the batteries will superheat when you're charging them, and they also heat up when they're uh, running the motors and everything. So because of that heat, they sell a, a insulated sleeve for the batteries that you're supposed to charge them in. A lot of people don't think about it because most batteries aren't that dangerous. Yeah. But these, once they get to a certain point, they'll ignite. And if they ignite, then it's like a chemical fire. You can't really put it out unless you have like a fire extinguisher or something like that. So wow, it can and be really there, intense. I, I guess. It, it, like, is there any reason why you would take the sleeve off in the uh, first place? Do you have to do it to put it in the copper? Yeah, the, uh, the battery itself is a regular pack. The sleeve that you put it in to charge and to store it is like a pouch. And so oh, really? okay. it's kind of like like a small bag for the battery, but okay. the battery doesn't go into your quadcopter that way. And okay. the battery itself is just wrapped in some like cellophane and some plastic material and some, you know, adhesive and what have you. And then it just has wires basically going into the core of the battery and then out to your plug connector. Oh, interesting. That's the first I've ever heard of that. <laughs> yeah, and I know it's it's a shame because they don't warn people about this. And, yeah. you know, what happens is they see this awesome video on YouTube where a dude's flying a drone and it looks amazing. And then he actually gets it home and it turns into, uh, I burned my house down, I burned my garage down, I crashed yeah. it into my kid and, like, now he only has four fingers instead of five. You know, all yeah. kinds of these yeah. things. And all they're thinking the whole time is, like, look at how great this is going to be. They're never thinking about, like, I've never piloted one of these before. I don't know how the technology works. I don't understand the battery system. And then yeah. on top of that, um, the cheaper ones don't have uh, auto safeties, like uh, quick landing features and uh, fly home features and all that. So those are completely up to the driver themselves. And even the guy with the uh, $6,000 drone, it has all those features, but he turned them off because he wanted to fly in manual mode. Well, what happens awesome. when you fly in manual mode? You run into a wall and crash that's your drone. Exactly yeah, yeah. I, I I have a lot of experience as a kid with my uncle building model airplanes and, and RC, like anything flying that's RC. So I know how hard it is to fly these things. And I've I've often wondered, even even with three or four propellers, uh, you, you you're still running into the same problems. And if you're not a pilot, if you've never flown a plane or don't fly in planes a lot, you just don't understand a lot of the stuff that happens when you get up, you know, 3000 feet in the air or, or something like that. And I think that's where a lot of the problems come into to play as well. Yeah. I think in the, I don't know what it is in Canada, but in the United States, I think you're not allowed to go above 500 feet in the air. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's about the same here, but you know, <laughs> or is it meters there, I suppose, or like uh, kilometers or something like that? I, I, yeah, sure. Okay. Sure. Um, <laughs> the other thing to, uh, to do is go talk to someone who owns a regular um, RC helicopter and ask them how hard it is to fly. And, you know, get yeah. an idea, like watch him fly it a little bit and see what kind of concentration and stuff it takes. Uh, I'm sure there's RC groups out there that can tell you like, hey, maybe you should try this one that's like hooked up to a cable first or something like that beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there's a reason why, and I don't know if you've run into this, but when you're on, when you're shooting like a, a narrative film and, and they, they hire a guy that brings his own quadcopter and he makes it look really easy and he's there for a few hours and he gets their aerial shots, there's a reason that they hire somebody um, specifically to, to fly those. Because that's all he does. That's right. That's, that's what right. he's good at. He doesn't do yep. anything else. He just runs the drone. Yeah, he's got insurance on yep. his $30,000 drone. 
Oh man, <laughs> so, some of those big ones, the gas-powered ones, you can really do some damage with. Yeah, yeah, but it looks really cool when they're up there with a 5D Mark III and they get these crazy shots. And, oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I usually just uh, go with a crane if I can. So that yeah, yeah, that's what it. I do too. Yeah, you got. It. <laughs> All right, moving on to the next news article. Here we've got um, the new Canon C100 Mark II coming out. Uh, this is a replacement for the original Canon C100. You can find the old Canon C100 now for about 3K used on eBay and 4K new. It's taken a lower price spot in the lineup. And the C100 Mark II is now at the $5,500 mark. The added features, it looks like, are higher frame rates at 1080p, which is 60 FPS. We've got uh, the dual pixel AF sensor upgrade as a standard for this. Uh, before with the C100 original, you had to pay 500 bucks to get it upgraded. It's got a few LUT supports that are added to the camera itself, Wi-Fi, and a 1.23 megapixel OLED screen uh, up from, I believe, 1 megapixel previously. It also, they moved the mics so that you have mics on both the body as well as the handle. And that's about it, really. There isn't a whole lot of difference otherwise. What do you think about Canon releasing the Mark II version of the C100? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, like I use Canon, uh, Canon Camerons. I, I, I like the C100, um, I, but I, I don't have a lot of brand loyalty with Canon just because of this, this type of, of release like this. You know, quote the unquote, C100. Upgrade. Yeah. The, this is the Mark II with the 60 frames per second at 1080p that should have been on on the the original c100 that you know I, I mean that that was a huge sticking point for me as i you know I'll, i would i wouldn't buy it uh the c100 as it was just because i just thought at at that price point it should have 60 frames uh you know cameras 10 times or 10 times cheaper than that habit why wouldn't they put it on on here now maybe there's something i don't know but that was a huge one for me no, no, it's nothing you don't know. The Canon was just being a jerk. Um, yeah. The sensor and all the hardware internally to this is almost identical to its bigger brothers. It just has less of a heat sink built in so that it wasn't made for 4K shooting. They could have added SDI ports if they wanted to. They could have made this camera a little bit higher level of professional for you know regular equipment or giving yeah. you a 4K option. I mean, mm -hmm. come on. Now you have the Panasonic GH4, which is offering 4K. And this $5,500 camera does not offer that, or at least a method for recording it externally? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's this type of thing that Canon does that disappoints me on a regular basis. <laughs> I won't lie. Um, I, I, sometimes I often, like, I just want to sit here and, and read some of these things and wonder, were, were these the, the last, uh, you know, Eight, eight, how long has it been? To 2008, they really hit with like video with the, the Mark II, but has it just been a series of happy accidents to Canon, or are they really kind of this greedy? Well, the uh, original 5D Mark II, the story goes that as they were about to release it, uh, somebody from their video department walked by and was doing a tour, and they still had regular standard definition recording in there, and he asked the engineers if he if they wanted him to program a quick and dirty video recording for HD. And they said, ah, sure, go for it. So in like the course of an afternoon, he programmed it. That's why it came out at exactly 30 frames per second instead of 29.97 or right. any other frame rates. <laughs> and then Canon was like, oh, whatever. And they didn't really even think about it until, you know, the uh, famous, what was it, Riviera, I believe, 
yeah, uh, came yeah. out and everybody saw that and thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, now right. we can have interchangeable lenses on a camera that's well under the price of any other camera on the market currently. Yeah. And so they, that's what happened. I mean, and then in, it, how long did it take? Almost a year and a half before they finally started offering regular frame rates with a cinema upgrade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I bet you there was a, a, a massive um, kind of palm to the forehead uh, type moment when the uh, when they they just realized that they cannibalized a lot of their their big expensive cameras by by having this guy do that in an afternoon. You know well, and I mean? that's the thing is at that particular time, what was Canon offering the FX uh, three hundred and three hundred five, I believe. And, and neither one of those were very compelling. They no. were just, you know, a fixed zoom built into a body. They weren't much different than the previous generations of standard definition cameras that they were releasing. And they were five or $6,000 a piece, you know, and, yeah. and great. You know, you, maybe you get some kind of uh, MXF format recording internally, but otherwise there wasn't a whole lot of bells and whistles in, in those cameras and they were so expensive. Then the 5D Mark III comes out, and even with its you know four gig limit and twelve minute recording problems and all the other stuff, people were extremely excited. Before that, honestly, I was shooting with one of those crazy lens adapters going onto yeah. an HD yeah. camera, you know, and like turning my camera upside down and That's doing all kinds yeah. of wacky stuff like that. I hear, yeah, I, I think I was doing the same thing. Yeah, and That's so hilarious. and now we have DSLRs. You know, honestly, I owned a five or a Canon C100 for a while. And I was extremely disappointed. I paid the full $5,000 for mine, and I didn't like it at all. I didn't think it was that great of an upgrade for $5,000. I turned around and sold it right away, and I'm glad I did, because now they're selling for two or $3,000 less than I paid for it. Yeah, and actually, funny enough uh, that you say that, your your video was one of the ones that I used as ammunition towards some of the people that were... Uh, that we're, we're going to, to get it. I was like, hey, maybe you should take a look at this. Cause uh, that was I'm just kind of hit home that this isn't, this isn't the, the end all and be all of, of this level of camera at, oh, at this no. price point. And I still catch a lot of flack from uh, people all over who think the C100 is amazing. I just spoke with a, a, a filmmaker from New York uh, the other day and he was telling me like, listen, these C100s and C300s are the only camera for New York. Everybody shoots on these. They don't shoot on anything else. Like, well, that's great, but do you have any complaints about it? Oh, no, they're the best. I'm like, do you mm -hmm. only shoot documentaries? He's like, yeah. yeah. He's like, well, <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah, for, for that, it's – yeah, I, I can see why, why – Like, if know, I only want to have my 24 to 70 on here all the time, or my 24 <laughs> to 105 – and then I want to like immediately grab my camera and plug in a microphone or just like chase after somebody in the middle of the night. Maybe right. that's the right camera for that. But for most other things, I found it incredibly noisy at high ISOs. I had yeah. um, a heck of a time with the black balance and getting it to white balance with other cameras. It, was, it wouldn't even white balance against a C300, which is extremely frustrating when you have two brands. You set the Calvin to the right number and they don't look the same. <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah, how, yeah. How does that even work? Especially when you're five to ten grand for a camera. Exactly. And those two cameras. You know, I that, understand if you have two 5D Mark IIs or Mark threes and like they're yeah. a little bit off. Those are photo cameras. They're not video cameras. Yeah. This has like proper color bars and all that business. And then it was also finicky when I would go from hot uh, temperatures to cold temperatures. It would drift back and forth. And I oh, tell really? people this, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, you know, I've run into that." 
I'm like, then how come it's such a great camera? Like, all I ever hear is, oh, this is amazing. You should get one of these. But in yeah. – uh, I'm sorry. That's my rant on the C100. <laughs> That's all right. I was going to ask you – because, I mean, I've been with one for literally 20 minutes. But did – what did you think of uh, in terms of robustness of uh, how it's how it's built? Like, I mean, are docu- documentary filmmakers going to be able to take this out into the Mojave Desert and you know is this thing going to stand up? Are they are they built that well? Do you think? I'm going to tell you right now, the uh, C100 is somewhat solid as far as far as dirt and desert work goes. Though I would put a red flag up right there. Yeah. Uh, there's an internal fan that oh, really? draws air through the unit uh, during normal operation. <laughs> and you can yeah, shut the fan good. off, but there isn't a screen or anything to protect your your sensor and stuff like that inside. And it's cooling the sensor and the electronic boards. So one of the things you have to think about right away is the fan is extremely noisy, but it's noisy enough that if you're close to the camera, you'll get a dull hum in your audio. And that's fine if you have like a scratch track to cover it up. You know, if you go record yeah. some ambient sound ahead of time and then put, uh, put it over the top as, as a sound bed. But if right. you don't, and you forget about it, you can hear the fan clicking on and off. And if you don't turn the fan on and you're in a hot situation, the sensor can overheat and the camera can shut down. So if you're out in, you know, in the heat, maybe you're interviewing a mechanic, for example, and it's yeah. you know, 100 degrees out. Well, the camera will run until it decides to shut off, and then you got to wait for the cool down period before you can turn it back on again. Huh, that that seems a little reminiscent of uh, the the Canon DSLRs as well. I mean, uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've never overheated off. my uh, 5D Mark III, but... I had overheated the 5D Mark II and to a lesser yeah. extent a few times my um, 70. Yeah. But it's just that these are problems that should not be in a no. $5,000 plus dollar camera. You know, yeah. a, a fan that sucks air in from outside? What is this? <laughs> you know, like, is this 1998? Yeah. Are we dealing That's, with PC yeah. towers? I mean, I don't understand. <laughs> Does it have like a little exhaust at the front? A little. A it little has uh, little airports on the sides. And that's another thing. No one ever talks about that. Have you ever seen a video where someone's like, hey, look at these airports. You know, they bring in air with a fan. You know, they have to turn (laughs) the fan off. No, no one ever says that. Where is that guy? Yeah, really. I wonder if, uh, you know, in the future, the the Mark III will have more of like a, like a, you know, a cherry tip that they put on the, uh, on on the, the, the racing cars, the street race cars. So you can, you know, I don't know. Just thinking of uh, cool accessories to give it a little bit more, more flair. (laughs) All right, uh, moving on down the line, uh, VentureBeat reports that Vimeo Pro subscribers will now be able to upload 4K footage to Vimeo. Unfortunately, you won't be able to stream it. You'll just be able to download it with the proper password as a Vimeo user. So what do you think about this? Vimeo has been around for a while, and it used to be heralded as one of the premier great quality places to go to show your work. Now... It's five years, six years into it, and they're offering lower standards and resolution than most of its competitors. Like uh, YouTube's a big example, but you also have uh, Netflix and Amazon offering 4K streaming. What's going on? You know, I well, I, I still think that Vimeo still is one one of the best ones. I, I the 4K thing, I think, is just a matter of business. I mean, there. The the reality of it all is that you know most of the people that are that are watching Vimeo, YouTube, anybody that already has 4K, um, they, they don't have 4K monitors. I mean, outside of the U.S., a lot like 
Canada, for example, we don't even, most of our infrastructure isn't even close to being able to handle 4K broadcast television, let alone the, the bandwidth for, for internet, honestly. Maybe a couple of provinces, but but not the vast majority of them. So it makes me wonder, of, you know, outside of the U.S. again, other countries, Europe, things like that. I mean, people just aren't, they just don't have the 4K screens yet. To, to make it worth your while. So I think downloading from, from Vimeo, if you have a 4K screen, you got the option to, to download, you know, go to it. That, that That's great. I just, I don't know if they need to be wasting time, money and effort doing it right now. In the future, awesome. Right now, yeah, I think that they're a great on target. Well, I guess the question I'd have for you then is uh, a Kodak implementation. Uh, part of the 4K expansion isn't as much about being able to watch the 4K as it is about uh, working on the back end to handle the Kodak and handle the color space and everything else in mm-hmm. a manner that's efficient. If Vimeo is not doing that, then are they keeping up with the next generation of H.265 uh, Kodaks that are going to be hitting the major platforms or already are hitting the major platforms in the case of YouTube and uh, Amazon? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it maybe. It doesn't from the outside. Maybe it doesn't look like. I mean, I don't know what's going on, but maybe from the outside, it doesn't look like they're keeping up. But if they have that ability, uh, and they're choosing not to implement it now because of costs, uh, you know, it might be something. I mean, because Vimeo is still just Vimeo, right? That like Google doesn't own Vimeo or anything, do they? No, no, Vimeo is its own company. Okay, so because I mean, you know, YouTube is under the Google conglomerate now, so uh, I, I feel like they have a bit of a, an advantage uh, financially over Vimeo. Uh, maybe, maybe I could be wrong about that, but um, I, you know, I, I just think it's kind of a it's a, it's a, a, a sound financial decision for them to to not implement that right away because uh, I, I don't know what it would take for them to do that, but I feel like it's something that if they if they keep up with it behind the scenes and maybe not uh, roll it out. Uh, as quickly as everyone else, maybe it won't be a problem when when they want to, you know, quote unquote, catch up. Now, are you a Vimeo user? Uh, I, I don't pay for it, but I watch vi- videos on Vimeo. Yes. Okay. Um, well, the reason I was asking is I'm kind of, you know, with with uh, YouTube, you can see where the support comes from. It's obviously mm-hmm. ads. You know, you have ads yeah. on everything. You have all this, uh, all these ads all over the place, and that's how the people that generate the content as well as YouTube themselves make money. What right. about uh, Vimeo? Are they only pro-user supported? Are there a lot of ads on Vimeo uh, videos? I, I don't really watch much Vimeo, so I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any ads on Vimeo uh, um, videos. So Is it's, there? you know, I haven't that's, seen one, and I'm trying to like, as soon as I said it out draw. loud... I was thinking, man, have I ever seen an ad on Vimeo other than, you know, someone's native internal ad to their own show? And I can't no, I, think of any. I, I don't think that there is, honestly, just because that and I think that's one of the main draws for Vimeo. Now, that might have changed. I'm just trying to to look for something here because, yeah, I mean, I mean, most most of the things that I watch are on YouTube, admittedly. But the professional uh, stuff for, um, you know, portfolios and whatnot, I I don't think I've ever seen I'm trying to look, see where they actually do advertise. I don't know what they even do. I've been told many times that I need to put my stuff on Vimeo, but oh, it's it kind not. of becomes this thing where I don't want to pay $200 well, a year yeah. to really like maximize my Vimeo usage. And I know they yeah. have the, what, the tip jar system now, I believe is the yep. thing. But yep, that seems right. like, I don't know. I don't really want to go <laughs> around with my handout saying, hey guys, you know, I made this video. Can you give me some dollars, please? You know? That, yeah. 
that seems that, that kind of weird. Me, yeah, that seems more of like uh, for the tip jar thing for me is um, uh, short films. You know, artists that I'm following that I really appreciate their work and and I I want them to keep doing it. You know, throwing somebody a couple of bucks, uh, especially if I'm watching it for free, I I think that that's that's you know a great that's a fantastic way to do it in my opinion. Now, speaking of uh, methods for income for artists on these uh, platforms, have you used Patreon at all? Or do no, you have I, I Patreon haven't. in uh, I, Canada? Uh, well, I mean, I can see the website. I don't even know if a lot of the things that are really cool that we hear about, yeah, they're not open to Canadian residents. I don't know if uh, Patreon is. I, I know exactly what it is. There's actually um, a great web uh, site called, uh, I believe it's called um, Canada. And it's just a list of things that America has that Canadians can't have. <laughs> and we, and the, the worst part is, is it's just like a giant, beautiful, shiny window that we can see into. <laughs> and we can't touch or smell or, or use anything in any way, shape or form. Well, uh, Patreon basically is a system where people can uh, become a monthly subscriber to whatever type of project you're working on to help support yeah. you. So as opposed to a... A tip. A tip's nice, but if you do it once, you think you kind of get this mental thing where you think, ah, you know, I gave him a tip one time, so I'm good. But if you <laughs> set it up with uh, Patreon, you can set it up to where you donate like 25 cents a month or 50 yeah. cents a month. And it's not a huge amount. It's nothing that's going to burden most people. But the accumulation of viewers, listeners, what have you, as it adds up, it starts to become a snowball effect where then they're bringing in, you know, three or four thousand dollars a month. And it actually makes it uh, financially feasible for them to quit their job and just do this specifically, whatever thing that you like seeing them do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a I like that method better than the whole tip jar system or yes. or there's the ads, you know. I don't like watching pre-roll ads on YouTube, but they pay the artists for their work. So that's another way of making money. And you have to, you have to come up with some sort of method for reimbursing people for their effort, especially if it's a lot of effort. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise they're just going to not do it or they're going to find some other thing to invest their time in. And, and like what you said about, I agree with everything you said, the, the ads though, kind of as, as a side note for, for us that are, uh, making, uh, especially, you know, commercial, uh, video, those ads are, are kind of a godsend for us. I, I think that they're, um, it's way they're, more jobs. That's Yeah. I mean, and, and that's for me, uh, like a lot of my commercial clients is that's one way that I kind of sell myself to them is, you know, this, this is a way that you can, cause a lot of people think television and they think automatically, you know, I don't have a million dollars to put my ad on TV, even, even, uh, you know, even small town, um, uh, cable stations, it's still expensive after you actually pay to, to create and, uh, and, and, and make, uh, the, the ad. But, but then to, to have something like YouTube where you're like, Oh, you know, you can throw it on, on DJ's, uh, video here and he gets, you know, this many thousand or hundred thousand hits per video or whatever, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot easier of a sell because that, that seems smaller and attainable. And, and I don't like, I don't think it's super expensive to, uh, to get it onto YouTube and to, and to have a lot of eyes watch it. Well, and the other thing to think about too, is, um, the, the aspect of possibly, you know, it's kind of a pie in the sky, but what if your video becomes the next, um, Oh, I don't know, old spice setup yeah, or something yeah. like that, where, mm -hmm. 
on top of being an ad, it's also something that everybody wants to watch. And when it becomes something that everybody wants to watch, you have basically just found the Super Bowl ad of a lifetime and you've paid, <laughs> you know, a regular amount of money for it. And that, right. that can be the pipe dream for a lot of these things. But you're right, too. Um, car commercials, I've done a lot of spec jobs where I'm just doing a video for a car dealership. And every right. week they have, you know, X number of new cars come in and they want a video tour for their website so that as soon as they get a phone call, they can say, OK, I just sent you a link. Click on this. And that gives you the whole, you know, look around to the car and everything. It takes right. me an hour to shoot one of those and another hour to put it together. I can charge a regular amount for it, and it's not substantial enough that it turns the car company away from me. And in fact, it kind of gives me a reoccurring deal. It's the same with the real estate videos. Now, a lot of people don't think about it, but if you have a video of a $500,000 home and do a nice walkthrough, um, that sells that house to somebody that can afford a $500,000 home way better than just some junky pictures that somebody took with a poor resolution point and shoot camera and then put up on their mediocre website that looks horrible. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and you know, the, the, the stats are all out there. You, you, you know, for any of those things, real estate, uh, uh, selling anything of any sort, if you want to, to get people to stick on your website and watch things, don't put a bunch of text up, you know, two or three pages of text and your picture because I don't – nobody wants to read it. It's just 99% of the people are going to click through unless maybe it's your cousin. But <laughs> they, you know what I mean? But, but if you put a video up, people just – they want to watch it and make it 30 seconds or a minute and there it goes. And that's, that's kind of that whole, um, that, that whole reasoning behind the, the YouTube ads. I've, I've stopped. Uh, you know, I, I don't hit skip ad every time. If it's, if it's funny – and and or it looks really cool. I'll watch it. There's that. Uh, there's a couple uh, that Nissan ad recently, and I was like, oh, you know, like the I don't know if you've seen that the the mud monsters or uh, no, I haven't seen that one. It's like this these, it, you know, it looks fantastic. These CGI mud monsters coming out, and the Nissan gets some new Nissan SUV gets stuck in the in the mud, and I, just from a technical standpoint, I'm like, wow, this commercial looks fantastic, and and I I watched it. I watched it all the way to the end, and it wasn't that long. I think it was only maybe a minute. Yeah, I fell but, into uh, the uh, Snapple uh, sinkhole <laughs> a couple years ago or a year ago. Like, I watched you know one pre-rolled, and I was like, oh, that was interesting. I kind of laughed a little bit, and then I watched another one. And then I found myself after an hour on the Snapple website, like going through all 20 of these little short commercials. Yeah. And I, I know I'm watching a commercial, but at the same time, I'm like, wow. I bet they did these for, you know, 5000 or $2,000 a shoot, and exactly. they nailed it. It's funny. It's got a lot of stuff to it, and it's a cool concept. And then you, the other thing I end up doing is, you know, the next time I talk to a client, I'm like, man, what if you did this? And I'm kind of, I don't want to say stealing, but I'm definitely borrowing creative influence yeah, in from some vein. of these other ads yeah. in that vein to, like, promote their product. And a lot of times the stuff I do only ends up on local markets or it's going to corporate where it'll never be seen again other than by new employees. And so doing that sort of thing is completely legitimate and it helps you uh, continue on with your craft. <laughs> that's, that's true. I mean, I mean uh, well, the, the Dollar Shave Club, I feel like kind of started kind that of whole thing. Spearheaded. Yeah. yeah, that was that was insane. And, and uh, did you read kind of the, the BTS behind behind how that went? And I did. It was it sounded like it was completely shoestring. 
Yeah. They, that company did not have very much budget at all. And they were just like, Hey, I got this idea and they roped some people into it and then yeah. went through and shot it. And it turned out amazing. Yeah. It was like 2,500 bucks in like a day or two days or something like that. It was like his, his second cousin or something that shot it or, you know, it was that kind of a story. And well, yeah, it's and the I mean, same with like some of these uh, early viral videos, like the okay go where they're yeah, just jumping yeah. back and forth from, from these uh, exercise machines, you know, yeah. running on each one of them and doing it in a chore- uh, choreographed manner. Yeah. And you well, don't think it- about it at first. You're like, yeah, that's weird. But then you watch it and you're like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's really smart and cool and yeah. like interesting. Yeah, it just goes to show it, it's it's not, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Like, because I mean, I don't even think that that that, that was shot on a, probably like a handy cam, I think. Or, oh, or yeah, something. it was something but, cheap. I think it but, was like one of the so or the Canon like handhelds. Yeah, yeah, it just goes to show, you know, an idea will win over over the uh, the gear anytime uh, it, it seems. As much as we don't want to admit it, and how, how we like to roll around in our underwear on our gear and stuff, but <laughs> we, but you know, it, it's it, the idea has to be there still for it to be successful. Well, one more uh, while we're on the subject, actually, there was a gentleman I met him at one of the conventions because when I do feature length films, I have to go tour around with the films for a while, and um, this guy. He showed me his video on YouTube, and I was like, oh, I've seen this before. It's really cool. And a band that he really liked had this song called Little Secrets, and they didn't have a music video for it. So he took it upon himself, like, over the course of three weekends to shoot a stop-motion video with all the words in skywriting and in, um, you know, cheese melting on a pan in stop-motion. Okay. And Sounds put it fantastic. All, yeah, he put it all together <laughs> and he turned it over to the band and they're like, we want to hire this guy. And so this is a pretty predominant band. And because of that, like all he had was a, a 5D Mark II and a 5D Mark I and, and, you know, a timer. And he shot all of this stuff, put the entire video together, organized it by words so that every single word has a action on the stop motion throughout the entire song and then turned it over. And now he... He can't keep up with the amount of work that comes to him. He's turning down music video jobs and and commercials all the time. And Mm -hmm. he had graduated from college. I think he had a business degree and he really didn't know what he was doing with his life. And he just (laughs) did this and like, bam, that was it. So I know that's the like the outside the circle example. But still, (laughs) you know, being creative and and thinking about your stuff and practicing your your craft is really what will like get you to move forward. Not having a Canon C100. Let's (laughs) eat on that camera a little more. (laughs) Yeah, with its uh, with its with its cool cherry tip uh, exhaust pipes sticking out the front. Maybe we can add like one of those uh, wind scoops on the back to keep it down, you know. (laughs) Well, yeah, it'll fly away. All right, so moving on with the news here, uh, Canon Rumors reports that Yongio, and you probably heard that name before, they make a lot of really decent um, Speedlight clone flashes for both Canon and Nikon cameras. They also, a couple years ago or a year ago, released a 50mm F1.8 clone that was like 80 bucks. Well, now it looks like they're going to release another clone, and this is a 35mm F2. If you go on... uh, Amazon right now and look for the 35 millimeter F2, not the new one with IS, but the original, the original sells for like three to $500. Uh, Yongyo is talking about this hitting a price point of around a hundred to $150. And it has native autofocus support, decent specs so far. No one's tested it yet. So that's all questionable. But what do you think about a new brand new brand of lenses being released for your DSLR cameras? 
Yeah, I mean that to me that's that's all that's great because I, I just think back to you know the the me starting out uh, with when couldn't you know I couldn't afford uh, amazing you know Canon L glass and things like you know I, I what who am I kidding I still can now but I'm just saying like this is a great way for for uh, you know students people anybody really uh, to to get in. Because that's a great focal length, especially uh, like I'm thinking of for my uh, APS-C format cameras. Yeah, you're pushing um, close to 55 millimeter esque, yeah. so that's like the ideal walk around, point and shoot. Yeah, it's focal fantastic. Distance. And f2 is is great. Some people might scoff at that, but really, uh, you know, if you're running and gunning around, uh, you're probably going to be higher than f2 anyway. Or it's yeah, I was actually having this focus. discussion the other day with uh, somebody else about focal lengths. And he asked me point blank, he's like, well, what do you normally shoot at on your full frame cameras? I'm like, well, honestly, a lot of times it's 5.6 or, or yeah. F4. And he's like, when do you go wide open? I'm like, well, whenever my subject is stationary or I have to move back and forth between two focal distances for a continuous like talking point or something like that. But otherwise, like I'm at F5.6 or F4 all the time. Uh, yeah. because otherwise with a full frame I'll screw up and get his nose out of focus or his eyes and nose out of focus or yeah. something like that. So I tend I generally tend to go a little bit more stop down and I've actually worked with people that want F8 or F16 all the way across the board and they want a lot of light so that way everything is in focus. Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Do you shoot a lot of wide open? Well, I, I actually I mean for me I can because I'm not shooting full frame I can I can get away with that a little bit more, you know, and, and I'm talking about like 1.8. Now, I mean, 1.4, I, if you're getting, if you're in a really low light area and you're getting kind of artsy with close-ups and things like that, then, then sure. But a lot of the time it's, everything's going to be blown out even just in a, in a regularly daylight overcast lit room. Right. So, um, so yeah, for, for me, uh, you know, I probably, I mean, there's a time and place for everything, but but a lot of the time, yeah, I'm I'm f f two to f four probably, maybe even outside, obviously with with ND filters and things like that. Then you know, I'm definitely above that, but but yeah, usually between f two and f four, maybe f three and f four. I do carry several variable ND filters with me, and mm-hmm. now that I've got the uh, GH four. I tend to shoot at f two eight on my zooms like constantly because that's about five six or six and some change whatever yeah. it works out to because I think it's a two point three crop or something like that. But uh, the one thing I haven't published this yet, but I'm actually uh, writing it. Uh, I started this morning. Um, the filters <laughs> for that size of lens are actually super affordable for your variable ND filters. The what? average uh, thread size for the Panasonic lenses is, is below 46. Oh. So at that point, that. you can buy a bunch of even up to 58 millimeters. The ND filters for that particular size are like 12 to 18 bucks. And I mean, wow. I'm not talking, you know, the yeah. shark or, you know, whatever yeah. the X Stingray, X-ray, whatever they call them. The yeah. really expensive ones. I have some of those, but yeah. I only use those on my 51.2 and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You know, those yeah. are for special occasions. I don't take those out for everybody's birthday party. Um, <laughs> the But these small ones, you can get um, some of the generic brands for 12, 12 to 20 bucks. And I find myself actually, I just did this uh, a, a, two months ago. I bought three different sizes of ND 
uh, filters because instead of buying a variable ND and then putting a bunch of adapters on it, I was just yeah. like, hey, I can write the name or the numbers of the lenses that work with that, grab it out of my pack and put them on there because it's so small and it's so affordable that now it doesn't really matter if I have uh, two or three different NDs. And if I'm yeah. moving between multiple primes on a regular basis, I don't even take the uh, variable ND filter off. I just set the lens down, shoot with my other lens and then pop it back on again and continue to use the variable ND filter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's kind of what I would do too, especially at, at those prices for, for variable NDs. What, what's the, I was going to ask you when you're saying that, what's the, um, like the largest, uh, thread, uh, di- or threaded diameter on the end of any of your, your GH4 lenses? What's the biggest that you, that you've got? I think 50, I want to say 58 is the biggest. And I really? believe that's on the, no, I, let me correct that. Uh, 62 is the biggest okay. 62 because, um, the Olympus, uh, 12 to, uh, what is it? 12 to 30, no, 12 to 40. Uh, Panasonic is the 12 to 35. The Olympus, because it's a kind of a heavier duty lens and it's got a lot more yeah. metal to it and stuff. It's a yeah. bit wider than the Panasonic, uh, 12 to 35 millimeter F2, 28. So okay. it goes up to 62 for its thread size, but for the rest of them, like, uh, even the, uh, 25 millimeter F 0.95 from Voigtlander, that's mm-hmm. a 52, I believe. The uh, mm-hmm. 30 or the 35 equivalent, which is the 17.5 millimeter f 0.95, that's a 58. So mm. they're not very big uh, no, filter that's sizes good. at all. That's and cool. if you go to like some of their primes, shoot uh, the little tiny 45 millimeter f 17 or 18. That guy, yeah. it's like 32 or something. You know, really ridiculously small oh, like right. that. Yeah, the lens. <laughs> I mean, you can hold three of those lenses in your hand without them falling out of your hand. That's how small their primes are. Yeah, and it's it's ridiculous. That that's that's crazy. Because I mean, I'm I'm constantly I'm always looking for. Because I mean, someday something's gonna happen. I'm gonna sneeze and drop a camera, and I'm gonna have to buy a new one. So I, I I'm I don't like. It's just the the more time goes on, it just doesn't seem worth it to keep keep in the in the canon camp now mind you i I don't have a lot invested in canon glass so i'm I'm not really worried about that Uh, i tend to buy old manual lenses anyway but uh yeah like the gh4 every hour of every day just seems to look better and better and better to me so well i I, own the i still kept one of my (laughs) 5d mark threes Um, (laughs) i was up to three of them for a while and uh having one i still kept all of my uh l lenses because mm-hmm. I'm in this weird spot where I don't really have anything to complain about with the 5D Mark III or yes. my T2Is. Yeah. I know you'll read some of the blogs and stuff uh, that are very critical of the amount of resolution that's provided by the 5D Mark III sensor. And, you know, there is some truth to that. If you really want to zoom in and look, you can see that things do get a little bit mushy even when they should be really sharp. But mm. for the most part, no one notices, no one cares. Unless you're really digging into the footage or trying to really blow it up beyond what is reasonably possible, you're yes. not going to have that big of an issue with the 1080p in these cameras. And because I have, I don't want to give a dollar number, but I own <laughs> a lot of red stripes in my bag, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. it's really hard for me to get rid of all that glass because what happens if something changes and I want to move back to Canon? Uh, there's cycles and they go back and forth what happens if you know maybe next year canon pulls their head out of their butt and like releases something amazing yeah and then i don't have my canon glass anymore 
And at the same time, I still shoot on my 5D Mark III and I use my Canon glass on my A7S as well. So then I'm still basically making money with it. It's still being a, a practical accessory for me. So then I don't have to worry about getting rid of it as of yet. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I mean, with, with uh, the, the red stripes, as you say, in, in the in your bag, if, if you've got that good of a set, I mean, honestly, if you had to get rid of them, I, I highly doubt you would be uh, losing out on too, oh, no. too much, right? Uh, lenses so, really retain their value. Yeah. Um, and some of these, actually a lot of them, because I work on so many different projects, I've been able to kind of collect them from people who needed rent money and things like that. Oh, there you go. I'm not saying that's the best <laughs> thing to do. Never take advantage of your friends like that. But if they're in a hard spot and you got cash, sometimes the cash wins and you end yeah. up with a bunch of good lenses. That's so true. I would probably turn a profit on most of the lenses in my bag. Now, minus, yeah. you know, some, you know, oddball ones like the, uh, I have the 24 to 105 F4. I think I bought that at 500 bucks. I think it still sells for 500 bucks or a little bit less. So, yeah. but, yeah. Uh, you know, like my 51 two, my, uh, 24 F14, my 35 F14, all those are, yeah, know, those they're, are... they're like printing money. They're always going to be worth whatever they're worth unless some yeah. newer version comes out. Yeah, I mean, worst comes to worst, you could. I mean, I don't know what insurance is like in Nebraska, but you could, oh, yeah. you could like, you could like, you know, rent those out if you if you really wanted to, and you could make a business out of it. I will not be renting out my glass anytime <laughs> soon, sir. Well, if you're brave enough, you you could. Okay, moving on. Before we dive too far into that one, um, next up on the list here is let's see, uh, new Sony FE mount E mount lenses were finally mm. announced at CES. Um, one of the big issues right now with the whole A7S and the E-mount lenses in general is that we're kind of missing out on a lot of focal lengths. And it looks like from this list, they are finally starting to fill in the gaps with somewhat reasonably priced lenses. We've got a 28mm f2, uh, supposedly releasing in February, a 35mm f1.4, a 90 f2.8, and a 24 to 240 Three five to six four. I don't know if that's really a super desirable one, but uh, what do you think about this? Uh, have you been checking out the A seven S footage and logging after it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I because I, I do uh, a fair amount of shooting, um, a lot of bands and real dark rooms. So uh, it seems like um, you know the A seven S is amazing. You know the footage is it's astounding. It's, it's the thing sees in the dark, which is crazy, but. Uh, the only thing for me is, I, I don't know, like I've never been a huge fan of the, uh, the, the Sony image. I, I don't know how else to put that. The color uh, science or yeah, I, I guess it, it. Yeah. It's, or maybe just the combination of things. I, you know, I've spent, I've had some time to fiddle around with the, uh, um, the FS 100, which is, I know it's an older camera now, but a lot of people keep it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, but I just, I don't know for the for the amount of money, uh, not not too sure if I would go that way. But it's nice to see that that Sony's kind of heard what people are saying. <laughs> They're kind of slow to get to it, but uh, they it's nice to have some some lenses uh, that they make for the camera. And that that Zeiss that thirty five millimeter one point four should be nice. But you're definitely going to pay for it. I've been a little bit disappointed with some of the releases, like uh, the sixteen to thirty five f four. Uh, 16 to 35 is good, but F4, come on, guys. Yeah. And I get the feedback from a lot of people that say, well, yeah, but the camera can see in the light, or in the dark, so you don't really need to have 
uh, a wider aperture on that camera or on that lens. And I guess oh. that's true, but if I'm paying $1,700 or $1,500, <laughs> I feel like I kind of earned the right to have an F 2.8 zoom. Yeah. Am yeah I at least a 2.8. No, no, I, I agree. And, and two, I mean, aperture is not all, all about, um, just, just how bright the image is. I mean, it's, it's doing other things, right? I, oh yeah. And if so, I want to use it for a still or something like that, yeah. I do want to knock the background out a lot of times. Yeah. Or, you know, even if I'm just shooting an interview or something like that, I still F2.8, I want to go to that, you know, yeah. or sometimes you're in a conference room where you don't have enough room to get the person far enough away from the back wall or what have you to really do what you want with that. And so then you need a wider aperture and F4 doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, exactly. And maybe I, I'm, I'm that. I have to believe that that's Sony's reasoning behind it is that, well, you know, we can see in the dark, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sold on it. I, they look like nice lenses. Uh, it was kind of hard to find, to find the information, uh, I thought in the, uh, in the, the video, I feel like they kind of just gloss they just over touch, it and yeah, give they, you a they list. Did, I mean, they had a lot to go over, mind you. They had a, a lot of stuff and that was a big event, but it was just kind of like, yeah, here they are and do, 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 and. Yeah, well, the other thing I think what's what's going on here is because Sony's uh, A or A series mount hasn't been as popular as their new E mount cameras, yeah. they're kind of rushing to meet the demand that they weren't expecting. I don't think Sony was quite uh, expecting everybody to f uh, run right towards the A seven S and be really excited about that whole A seven line, and yeah. they were. So when they first announced those cameras, there were what maybe two or three lenses total available. And F4 is a lot easier piece of glass to make than yeah, an F2.8. It doesn't take as much color science. It doesn't take as much coding systems. You don't have to make the glass physically as big as you would with an F2.8 lens. And there's a lot of other factors that go into that. And I think it was just a matter of, well, we have all these Minolta patents and we already have these designs here. Let's put a new coating on them and like kick this out really fast. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's kind of what's going on. And maybe I'm wrong. This is pure speculation here but <laughs> but i think that this sony was not expecting this kind of um immediate uh popularity of their camera i think they were hoping for an incremental slowly eroding the other cameras as opposed to a bunch of people jumping ship from canon and other brands and moving straight to the a7s yeah i mean i honestly it, for for me if i could afford one that would be uh it, that would it's between that one and the gh4 right now and i feel like that's kind of on the that's where a lot of people are. Like most people that I know are in the same kind of boat. I'm covering kind. Of, I'm kind of hovering over all three camps because you know I've got yeah. my A7S, my 5D Mark III, and my GH4, and I mm -hmm. use all of them for different things. The GH4 has basically become my travel camera because it's so light and I can fit so many lenses into a tiny bag that mm -hmm. if I have to fly somewhere and I don't want to ship my equipment to myself or worry about tracking and all that stuff i just grab the uh, gh4 and go but if i have a project where i'm going to be working in in very uh dim situations like you said a band or doing a music video or something to that nature then the a7s is a godsend it's i would arguably say it's better in low light than the c100 or the c300 it is a really amazing 
uh, lens, camera, whatever you want to say about it. I, the lens system aside, sorry, that's not actually part of the thing. But the, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. It's it's really good for low light, and yeah. it still has really bad jello cam and some other things. And yeah. that's one thing I yeah. I took out of the show notes, but I did talk about previously is the the whole recording 4K with that. Well, the the A7S having a 1080p image out of that really scales down what the sensor is doing. And because of that, a lot of the artifacting and, and little imperfections kind of disappear. You don't have to worry about them. But when you upscale, and, and maybe this is just me, but I've been watching a lot of the 4K recordings directly from the A7S, and it starts to look like artifacting's coming back and a lot of uh, noise and things that you I was not expecting. And if you are an A7S owner and you don't have a 4K recorder, one thing to do to, to kind of see this in action is go to the crop mode in that camera and film some 1080p. And the crop sensor version of that camera, when you set it up for crop mode, the images for video look a lot trashier as you go down and into higher ISOs. Um, the lower light situations with the crop sensor turned on, it's, it starts to break apart a lot more. And I'm thinking that's what's going to happen with a lot of this 4K stuff with the A7S. Is Part of the benefit is that it's scaling down to 1080p. But if you're getting the full resolution of the sensor itself, because uh, uh, 4K is what, 8.2 or 8.8 megapixels? Yeah, I think it's 8.8, isn't it? Yeah, 8.8, 8. 8. Uh, that sounds right. Um, or okay. one of those. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> let's go with 8.8. Let's go with uh, just above 8 megapixels. So, yes. you know, when you're scaling down, basically it's doing it all internally and it's doing it in such a way that it kind of makes everything look better. But when you scale that up to one for one, then it seems like you might fall into that same category as what you get with the crop mode on the A7S. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, sorry, and, and uh, the other thing I was going to say is, is it just me or is the the Jello like brutal on? The oh A7S? yes, it is. Um, as, even at 1080p, uh, anything faster than a crawl as far as pan yeah, pan right. goes, and you'll you'll start to uh, see the legs and the head, you know, shift. Yeah. And I, so you got to be really yeah. careful with that. Oh yeah. And, and I, I mean, I kind of thought we were in terms of camera systems, I thought we were kind of getting past that whole problem a little bit more, <laughs> but, but I guess you, you kind of have to take the good with the bad. If you want to see in the dark, you gotta, uh, you know, buildings have to melt in the, in, in movement, uh, or in the pan. Well, and if there's, um, there's minor uh, problems with that. There are ways to correct it in post. Uh, a yeah. couple of people have yeah. written some very clever algorithms that go through and retweak the angle of everything and straighten it up. And they do work pretty well. Uh, generally, just don't pan extremely fast with the A7S unless you're looking for that sort of you know, fast, weird kind of movie look. And I've seen people get away with it in films and, and not be upset about it. So I suppose it's not that jarring to people. But yeah. us filmmakers notice it right away. You're like, oh, man, that's Jello cam right there. It's the same, same thing when you're watching an expensive production and you see that the character's face is out of focus for a little bit. You're like, oh, man, I bet the focus puller got chewed for that one, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, hopefully the, the Jello cam thing isn't going to be one of those things that uh, a few generations from now they just get used to seeing that. No. Uh, Sony's pushing <laughs> really the, the global shutter pretty hard. Yeah, uh, they've already released uh, white papers on a couple of their new sensors and the new sensors uh, can do global shutter and they also are moving back to CCD again. So you don't have to worry about a lot of the problems that you originally ran into 
with CMOS sensors. I don't know if you, well, you mentioned you shot in older cameras back in the day. Yeah, well, yeah. It, remember back in the early 2000s, everybody was clamoring to get a CCD sensor. Yep. Panasonic was selling uh, cameras yeah. with CCDs and that was putting them ahead of the curve. And, and then when the uh, 5D Mark III and Mark II hit, it was like CMOS all the way. Everybody was going back to CMOS again. And mm. now we're completely over the hump and back to repeating ourselves again with the previous generation of technology, only it's gotten better now and now it's yeah. more applicable. Well, it's, yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, that that's what always happens with uh, history, technology, humans in general. It's uh, a little bit cyclical there. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got two more discussion topics up here. Uh, the first one up is the uh, Muskin, I believe. Mushkin. Mushkin. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? These, Mushkin, yeah. these guys have uh, one terabyte SSDs. And they have dropped down to the sweet spot below thirty six cents a gig. Uh, their one terabyte drives are now three hundred and fifty nine dollars new on Newegg, and that's with free shipping. I'm going to post an article on this pretty shortly, so be watching for that. But these are extremely affordable, and right now they hold the lowest price on the market for a one terabyte drive. Are you currently editing on an SSD? Uh, I'm not. Uh, I, and after seeing that, I have no idea what I'm waiting for. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, because I mean that that's that's fantastic, and and uh, I've I've had some experience on on uh, suites that that are all you know all SSD um, uh, editing suites, and the the difference is astounding. Even on older computers with not the best uh, um, you know graphics cards and and you know slower processors, things like that, it it's it's a huge difference. The first thing I usually tell people if they have an older editing laptop is to go yeah. grab an SSD and shove it in there. And if mm -hmm. you do that, you're going to get another two years probably a life out of the thing simply because of the amount of performance that the SSD provides for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I, uh, I actually uh, – uh, I edit my, – my suite at home is all um, uh, Apple uh, so it's a little bit different than, than your setup. But uh, – I mean, I know a lot of my buddies have older um, iMacs that that they're using, and you know they're using either F FBX or FCPX or Premiere or whatever, and they've all done that. And talk about uh, ramping up the life of of an older computer. You know, people that are having they have iMacs from two thousand and nine that they're still that they're still using. Not that that you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. These things are they're they're <laughs> I, I'm impressed when they put in an SSD and just putting you know their their os on there and and uh having the computer uh, uh running through that it's it's fantastic it gives new life uh to the, to the whole system for sure now there is a, a little bit of a caveat to this particular drive and to some of the more affordable ones uh, mm -hmm. samsung also offers an affordable drive theirs is currently the 840 evo and it's sitting at um 420 dollars. it looks like right now uh the 840 evo uses triple level nand so yeah. the issue with that is write times to that particular style of of memory. Now, because you have three levels instead of two levels, like a normal um, SSD, you have to spend a little bit more time writing to it. And so it has a bigger buffer. It's usually not an issue, but if you're writing files bigger than 12 gigs simultaneously and in a giant stream, you might end up filling up the buffer after about an hour worth of writing. So keep that in mind. Uh, the particular issue with the, this particular drive is that it uses the Silicon Motion uh, controller system, which isn't an issue per se, but it's a little bit slower than some of the more modern ones. 
And when I say a little bit slower, we're still talking speeds, read speeds of 560 megs per second and write speeds of 460 megs per second. So it's by no means slow, but <laughs> the current generation of controllers can actually max out the uh, SATA ports on your computer. So that's where you're going with this. This is a little bit older in technology than those, but not enough so that I would be completely concerned with any sort of performance lack, especially for the price. Yeah, and and especially if you're if you're coming uh, from just a uh, your your regular uh, you know hard drives to yeah, this, exactly. it's gonna be it's gonna be a great night and day performance. You one of one of them that the old one would be Green Lantern running, the new one would be the Flash. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's a, you deserve a laugh track for that one. Man. Thank you, thank you. That was my Justice League comparison there. All right, uh, one other thing I want to note for people that are kind of concerned with moving to SSDs. Um, in the show notes here, and I'll post these to the site as well, there's a report from uh, Tech Report, and they ran a durability test on a number of last year and the year before model SSDs. And currently, they've got it down to one drive, but at 500 terabytes of, of writing to these drives continuously for almost a year, 90% of the drives stayed in without any errors whatsoever. And 500 terabytes... That's a very <laughs> large amount of of data. And I, just as an example, I am a heavy user. I edit all the time. I do a lot of file transfers. And I would say I'm in probably the 10% usage range for the amount of hard drive applications I, I handle. And I've only written about two terabytes worth of of writes to my SSD, my main editing SSD, in the last seven months. <laughs> and that's a lot too. yeah two terabytes that's, <laughs> that's excessive that's like me moving entire <laughs> projects around back and yeah. forth yeah. and if you figure that out well it took me seven months to write two terabytes well it's you know in uh 10 terabytes that's seven times uh two or you know seven times five so now you're up to how many years and the warranty for the particular drive i'm writing to is five years I won't even get close to this 500 terabytes, even if I'm running at max speed for the next 10 years. So yeah. keep that in mind. I know the very first generation of SSDs kind of gave them a bad rap because people thought, oh man, these are awful or they're failing all the time or whatever. But the new ones, you don't really have to worry about it. And the tech report uh, torture test on these is a, a good testament to that. Yeah, I was I was even surprised at uh, uh, even the Samsung ones. Uh, I mean, uh, they they held up really well. But then to to see that that most of them um, uh, had no failures whatsoever, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh! Yeah, and even the ones that had failures at uh, 500 terabytes have yeah. error correction methods, and most of them actually partition off an extra 20 to 30 gig worth of space on the drive, especially the wow. Samsung 840 Evo. So yeah. if they lose sectors for some reason from massive writing like that, they basically just trade them out for sectors that were previously unused and protected. So then that way you get the lifespan and the amount of storage back from the drive. And you can cheat. The Samsung drives do offer an option to uh, basically use that extra s space that's available for uh, for later use. But if you do that, then you're risking if your data does fail, you don't have that extra section to move your data to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's impressive. I mean, uh, it just gives me more ammo to uh, to pull the trigger on uh, three or four. 
and they're way less expensive than they used to be, man. Oh, that's true. That's true. And that's the first ones I were paying. <laughs> I was paying this price for a 250 gig yes. drive. So, yeah. All right. Last thing on the list here, and then we'll move on to the pick of the week. I've got the Monoprice $84 2.4 gigahertz wireless band law of mic system. This thing is really cheap. It's $84. (laughs) There isn't even any uh, VHF systems in that price range. Now, I posted a video on DSLRFilmNoob.com, and you can go check that out. But basically, the mic that's included with this isn't that great, but the audio is clear for the transmitter itself. So if you look at the type of connector that they're using for this Monoprice $84 wireless system, it looks to be a TRRS sleeve 3.5 millimeter jack. That's the same one that you see on your cell phones and on your iPads and things of that nature. So if you go to Amazon, because recording on iPhones and iPads has become very popular, there are a number of lavalier options that are available to people that have that TRRS sleeve on them. And these microphones, these lav mics are only $60 on the high side. Some of them are down around the $25 to $30. I haven't tested it yet, but I'm guessing and I'm kind of leaning towards testing it because I kind of want to just know. But uh, <laughs> I think that by changing that out for a nicer lav, you're going to get a pretty usable sound out of this. Now, this is 2.4 gigahertz, which is the Wi-Fi band. It's also the band that a lot of these uh, wireless phones use in your house and things of that nature. So keep that in mind. If you're going into a high Wi-Fi concentrated area, you're probably going to have a hell of a time getting this to work properly. If you only have three or four channels of Wi-Fi in the section that you're at, then this is probably just fine for you. So studio use, outdoors use, if you're maybe a hunter and you're going out into the field or something like that, or if you don't live in a major metropolitan area, don't take this to a convention. Don't ever think you can do that because (laughs) conventions have all kinds of signals bouncing around and it's crazy. But for people who are shooting in their home who want to take their video to the next level, this even comes with a quarter 20 hot shoe adapter as well as a monitoring system where you can actually put an earpiece in and talk to the person that's running the camera or vice versa to send information back and forth because it has two channels of audio. So that's another crazy thing. You could maybe even do like a news report style thing where somebody's feeding lines to the other person or something of that nature. Oh, wow. I did, yeah. I didn't even think of kind of the, uh, the applications for, for that after I, I watched the video there, but yeah, uh, I, that it really excited me when he showed me the, uh, um, the uh, four pole little little plug there because I automatically thought of my uh, the the Rode SmartLav. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I do not have uh, a wireless transmitter just for the sheer fact that it is so expensive. And why buy a crappy one? Because I have I, I've used them with other people's before, and it is a severe pain if if you do have a cheap one. Oh yeah. Um, especially if if you're you know somewhere and time is tight. And, uh, you know, you turn it on and you can hear somebody's baby monitor or some weird stuff like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, it sound. It, I mean, from, from Jordan's video, it's, it, it, uh, I mean, like you said, the mic didn't sound good, but you pair that with a, with a good laugh and, uh, you, it, that could, that could be something I might get uh, as long as, you know, as long as, as long as it doesn't, uh, You're let someone like price. me, uh, pioneer it first and see if yeah, it well, works. That's definitely going to happen. Yes. I will wait for your full review on that, but 
uh, I'm just more worried that everybody's gonna gonna buy them once uh, you know you you say like yeah hey it works this is amazing and then whew, all of a sudden they're two hundred and no, oh, that has happened so many times. <laughs> I feel so bad for people yeah. where they're like, hey, you said this was $35. Yeah. Well, it was when I found it. Now yeah. it's like 75 or 150 bucks, and it doesn't make any sense at all. You should just have like a big stamp over your videos that say, this product's been noobed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, even the um, – uh, this is kind of off topic, but even that uh, iRig Pre – that was bouncing yeah. down around yeah. like 15 to 20 bucks. Yeah. And as soon yeah. as I posted that hack, it started coming back up to 30 and then 35. And now it sits yeah. nice and even at 40 all the time, sometimes even 50 bucks if it's like low in stock. And it, yeah. at that point, you're getting close enough to buying a used unit that it's kind of questionable as to whether the value is there anymore. When it was yeah. like 15 bucks, it was the extreme value. Even at 35, it's a pretty good deal. But, you know, you get up to 50 or $60 and now – I don't know. Yeah. Well, and that that was a pretty big one that you did too. Like that was a that was a pretty huge game changer, was it not? I mean, I've I've run into a lot of people that, that have used that. I didn't realize at the time that it it's turned out as well as it has, but uh I meet tons of people that shake my hand and thank me for that one. Uh, There's also a really tiny monitor back in the day that I did a mod on that made it. And that one was pretty popular because it was like an $18 car rear backing monitor. And at the time there wasn't anything available and it it worked out to be like 30 bucks to make this like cheap monitor for your camera. Yeah. And now it's, now it's like $450. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. All right, moving on. Uh, we've gotten through all of the discussion topics. I think I'm going to skip the ASUS 4K panels for uh, another time. So okay. what is your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week isn't uh, – it's not really uh, camera gear per se, but uh, discovering the uh, – I use uh, the, uh, the Tascam um, – dr60d for for my audio and uh one thing we all know is that thing chews through through the batteries pretty quick but uh finding the the amazon um brand of their rechargeable batteries at half the price of the uh the Antelope batteries yep fantastic i'm so happy about that especially for the uh for the 16 pack um because what is it uh it's about uh i don't know 26 27 dollars us 30 bucks canadian i think around the same for, for that's for the the double A um, sixteen pack of the uh, the Amazon Basics rechargeables. Um, oh, that's not bad, is, actually. Just yeah, and and all the ratings and everything that that I've seen the reviews, all the tests um, that uh, I've let other people do. Sorry about that. Ah, uh, no problem. Um, that's what but, we're here uh, for. Yeah, but but uh, they're 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 pretty uh, comparable, if not uh, you know almost exactly the same. So, bravo! That's that's fantastic. I personally <laughs> use the Antelope, uh, I believe is how you pronounce it, and they're a, yeah. a much pricier battery. Um, yeah. But I also use them for flashes, and so oh, right. uh, for a flash, you need a really high amperage discharge rate. For most other things, you don't. And so that's where the real big difference in the price for some of those comes in, is that if you are really drawing a lot of current from them, they will die faster. But if you're drawing a consistent amount of current from them on a regular basis, then it doesn't really matter. And that's yeah. really great for like the uh, DR60D and now the newer DR70D. And we're actually recording this podcast right now on a DR60D. So there you go. 
and it sounds fantastic. It does, actually. It's pretty nice. It having the ability, well, let's not get into how I'm podcasting this, but the other thing (laughs) to note, too, if you are looking for extended life on your DR60D, is that you can power it directly from the USB port. So I was going to ask you that, yeah. And in fact, I'm running it from the USB port right now. I have a little plugged in uh, phone charger and then the cable running up to the DR60D in order to power it so we don't lose it during the podcast. But uh, basically, they sell a couple of large pack batteries that have a quarter 20 through the middle, and you can screw it onto the bottom of your DR60D. And with one of those, you can actually run the DR60D for a couple of days without having to put more batteries into it. So that is something to think about if um, you really need to get a lot of life out of your DR60D and you don't want to change the batteries uh, throughout a shoot. I find with the the good rechargeables, and I don't know if the Amazon are the same way, but it will last me usually about three to four hours of recording, uh, depending on how much phantom power I'm supplying. And then I'll have to change it out. So I usually bring four sets of batteries with me uh, to a shoot if I'm just changing the batteries. But if you buy this bigger pack, and they are pretty spendy. They're, uh, I believe they hit uh, the $100 mark. But they are also used for monitors and some other things too. Uh, they sell them sometimes in combination with like the Lilliput monitors and things of that nature. Uh, you just screw it onto the bottom of your Tascam, run a cable up, and they sell right-angle USB cables on Amazon that are nice and short. And then you can just plug that right in, and you don't have to worry about an extra cable sticking out, and you can power it all day long. Oh, that's fantastic. So where do you pick up uh, those battery packs? Uh, They they sell them on Amazon. Um, Lilliput has a few that are branded Lilliput. And if you uh, shoot me an email after the show, I'll I'll, uh, send you a link, and you can check it out there. Yeah, please do. I guess I don't know. Like, does is Canada get a different Amazon than we do in the states? Because yeah, yeah, and ours has like you know sixteen things, and yours has like sixteen million things. Oh yeah, well <laughs> I run into this with uh, uh, people in Europe as well. Like they're like, yeah. hey, where do I get that? And I'm like, oh, it's just on Amazon, and they're like on Amazon UK, and they cannot find it because yeah. it is not available because of some VAT or tariff or something weird that's going on with the whole like transporting from country to country thing. Right, right, yeah. That, that's that big glass window thing again. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, I, I like I can order from Amazon dot um, uh, com and I can get it here, but uh, usually I have to pay for shipping when it's free from the the Canadian one, or you know, there's going to be some sort of crazy tax or something. Yeah. Well, I'll throw out my pick of the week really quick here. Um, yeah. And it's actually something cheap and and simple. I bought a really crappy set, a 32-piece tool set on Amazon, (laughs) and I've used it to tear down as many laptops as I can think of and upgrade them to all sorts of of new pieces, RAM, what have you. And that set is still together, and it still works just fine. You can find them on Amazon for about $15. They're labeled 32-piece small tool kit, and... It's great for yourself if you're tearing apart this sort of equipment and fixing it. It's also great for your wife or if you have family members that do some sort of like small stuff, that sort of toolkit. It's weird, and I know it's not a really a film-related thing, but also in the field, if you have a screwdriver and maybe some hand tools, you can sometimes fix things that would otherwise be permanently broken until you get home. So keep that in <laughs> mind for an extra in your bag. Uh, the other oh, thing yeah, while we're a- on the tools, um, a Leatherman or a Gerber of some kind is always awesome to have mm-hmm. with you when you're on set. There's always that like weird screw or bolt, 
And yes, you can get away with using a dime or a Canadian penny, but uh, <laughs> we don't have pennies anymore. Oh, well, then no definitely. Yeah. You know, those are just trash. They throw them on the ground like they're it's nothing. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, yeah, if you, you could do that, but you're going to tear up your your mounts and everything else. That's not the way to go. So get one of these multi tools or one of these small tool kits and throw it in your bag. It doesn't take up that much space and it'll save your life someday. Yeah, that is awesome advice. I always have uh, my Leatherman with me. So, yeah. All right. Well, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm at, uh, my website is uh, jonathanapictures.com. And uh, you can see my work there, hopefully soon to be blogged there. Um, you can find me on uh, Facebook uh, under Jonathan A. Pictures and uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, and Twitter, um, uh, Jonathan, uh, uh, Jonathan Vids. Jonathan Vids? I believe so, yeah. Yep. All right. Now we're Jonathan A. Pictures. Yeah. All right. Thanks, folks, for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Uh, Look forward to some more articles on some of the things I talked about this week, including that really affordable SSD. Might even post some links for that uh, battery I was talking about for the DR60D. And I will be covering those really affordable variable NDs for GH4 shooters. So stay tuned for that next week. All right, we're back with the secret extra bonus material. Ooh. Oh, wait a minute. That should have been hand claps. Yeah, was, there we up. go. There we go. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you, because you sound pretty good on the uh, the cast earlier, what mic system setup are you using right now for the podcast? Oh, really? I was going to ask if it sounded good. I am actually using drum roll. Oh, there it is. I'm using my um, Samsung G4 headphones. So, do they just have a built-in like gaming mic, or, or what is it? No, no, no. It's it's the it's the it's just the uh, the hands-free plug-in um, tele like phone cell phone um, headset. Really? Yeah, I know, and because I get a lot of compliments when people are talking to me uh, all the time. Uh, in the car and stuff like that, they're like, "Oh man, you know your your phone sounds fantastic." That speakerphone, I'm like, "Oh, it's actually the, uh, it's the just like the the earbud microphone hanging on the wire bit that right. you get." What to, was the model the again? It's the Samsung. Samsung, uh, the G4, um, G4 cell phone. It's it just came. Oh, came it's with just like the the one that just came the cell. It? Yeah. What. <laughs> I know. I'm blowing people's minds. Oh, wait a minute. It's the Canadian ones. Oh. Oh, Just kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's the same ones. It's the same ones. Well, I was wondering because I've been doing the cast with a lot of other people, and some people have really good setups and and have spent money on mics and stuff. And yours didn't sound the best out of all of them, but it sounded very decent right out of the box. Like you could use a a noise gate on there to like clean it up a little bit, but still, it, it sounds pretty good. You're the only thing I would say is your room must have some very flat walls with no changes in space on it because I can hear a little yes. bit of echo. Yeah, yeah. But I think if you, you know, you hung like one of those elevator tarps or something like that, you would be ready to roll and it wouldn't be an issue at all. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking because uh, in in the room I've just got a lot of space on on either side and yeah, like you said, flat hard walls. Yeah. I would just hang hang some moving blankets and I think I would be ready to go. Yeah, it it sounds surprisingly good, man. That's a uh, that's pretty impressive. I was not expecting it to just be like a, a goofy little like cell phone adapter. Type yeah, unit. yeah. I, I, you know what? I was a little bit 
uh, nervous doing this with, with these because I, you know, I don't have like a, a road podcast set up or anything like that. And I was kind of like, uh, but then I, I just kind of bit my lip and went with it and you didn't say anything. So I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm not actually doing it quite right either. I have, uh, because I own a lot of boom mics for filmmaking, I just mm-hmm. grabbed one of my uh, Audio Technica 4073s, which is one of my favorite yeah. boom mics. And I just threw it on a stand and put it um, about two feet away from me. Oh, nice. And because that, <laughs> that mic is, too. yeah, that mic's so directional and so good, yeah. it does a really decent job. And I had so many of them laying around, I didn't bother picking up anything else. It's not quite as conducive because I've been listening to my own audio and I do have a little bit of echo because of my, my room space. And so I would like to maybe switch over to a non-condenser microphone so that, uh, you know, it's a little bit less sensitive. But yeah. For starting out with the cast, it's been pretty decent. So, yeah, it sounds fantastic. Um, like on my end, it sounds really good. And I, I did listen to the, uh, a couple of the uh, the other um, people that you that you did uh, throughout the week, and um, yeah, I, I, like your your end sounded really really good. So, oh well, Great. maybe I'll um, maybe I'll just stick with this. I, I'm kind of concerned though, and this is kind of I don't know how much time you have. I don't want to keep you up too late. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, one of the weird things is a lot of people and. In, I guess I'm older, so I don't maybe get it as much, but they're like, hey, can we get a video version of this? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's a, a podcast, so it's really – it's audio, guys. It's That's what it is. It's just yeah. audio. And yeah. they're like, well, we would definitely like to you know, see you when you're doing it, and could you just put it on YouTube so we can just watch it on your YouTube channel? And so oh. now I'm having to think about, okay, well, what do I do for video? Because I own a crap load of video equipment. But yeah. I do not own anything that is designed to just film me while I'm at the computer and, you know, live stream. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm looking into all these like webcams and stuff to figure out a webcam setup that will work with with what I'm doing. And I found yeah. one. I'm going to order one of those Logitech um, uh, business style units to hang over the top of my monitor. But I was really surprised. I wasn't expecting anybody at all to really give a crap about seeing me while I'm talking to somebody, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess you know if you know if, if things work out with, uh, with me, you could, we could we could do funny things in front of the I, I don't know put up put up uh, signs. Well, is that what they want to see? Signs? Yeah, if we go to <laughs> if we go to that sort of format, I'll still record the podcast for audio because I'm paying for bandwidth for the audio. Yeah, yeah, I have to pay for it because the site the server space I pay for for the site does not cover the type of abuse that audio downloads would put on it. So I have to pay for that separately, but hangouts um, it's free. It puts it right onto YouTube after you're done and you don't have to handle any camera switching because it basically does all the switching for you. So what I'm thinking is I'll set up a screen capture on a laptop next to me and have that be the third person in the Skype. Uh-huh. And then okay. <laughs> as you move a mouse, Google will automatically move the camera to that and emphasize it on the screen because it looks for motion. Oh, that's cool. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is um, we can put up the show notes and maybe like the articles on that page, move the mouse, and then Google will zoom over to that really quick and look at it and then cut back to us. And we'll still be in those like little tiny box windows on the bottom. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So that's mm. kind of what I'm thinking. And don't steal this idea because – I don't no, think no, anybody I, else is doing it. And no, well, um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I, because I've seen Google Hangout videos, like just very simplistically done, 
um, but nothing with with like the show. If you can go to that that third source and and, and show the the show notes, uh, and and especially if you can, it'd be cool. Um, I don't know, you, you know, like uh, you see some of the the live things where where people can tweet in and stuff. But I don't know that I'm getting ahead of myself. Now. Yeah, that might be a little bit hard to do. Yeah, but um, what we can do though is you can roll footage on the external laptop oh, that's cool and so yeah. you can roll an intro and an outro video with the show and then bring on everybody you know bring on the two hosts to talk about the stuff and then use that as still as your transitional material back and forth so uh, i think i've got a, yeah. a different approach that no one's trying right now and i might you know i guess i'm putting this on the cast so everybody's just gonna steal it and it'll be their idea after a while but whatever <laughs> nope. i came it's up with it first stamped. i'm stamping yeah. it right now this yeah, is my yeah. idea i think it's really good and i'm gonna it do is it good. i think that's fantastic you, you need to jump on that i will i will tell no one <laughs> well and you jump on that uh this is kind of inside baseball but since this is extra stuff for everybody whatever um mm-hmm. whenever we finish up with the whole test hosting thing uh, whoever we figure out uh, is going to be the permanent host, I'll send them a one of these Logitech video cameras for their screen. So then that way they have the same video footage quality and everything as I do. And I'm assuming Ooh, as everybody's a filmmaker, we all have some kind of lighting package that we can set around yes. our desk or, or what have you. So yes. then that way it's it's useful and the footage isn't horrible. Yeah. And so that'll be like the, I guess, the prize for becoming part of the show i suppose i don't know <laughs> that's cool I, I mean i was i was going to set up my lighting package on me even though i knew you weren't going to be seeing me no. just in case <laughs> just just to have you know just a little backlight little hair light even though i don't have much but well, you know yeah i'm balding too something. man no, no, yeah, welcome to the club it's fine. High yeah, five. Yeah, it's fine it's but, fine but i've um i've actually a couple of people that i've done the cast with they were on the screen in front of me in in video format and they were hoping that i was too so they could see me moving around and stuff so maybe <laughs> there's a thing to that that i don't understand where they want to read your physical motions and like what you're doing while you're talking and stuff and oh, maybe. all i do is flail my hands around like a you know, yeah, so do I. And so, I look uncomfortable, and you can yeah, see my sweat. I guess you know if we're talking about a specific camera or something like that, I could hold the camera up to the screen and and demonstrate stuff like that. So uh, we'll see. Um, those are some of the things that are in the work for the podcast. Uh, also, hopefully, um, for those of you who have listened this far afterwards, we're going to probably try to do two shows a week, uh, starting after the nineteenth, uh, depending on how everything flows. I'm heading for pittsburgh for a shoot and after i get back from that on uh the tuesday after the 19th um then we'll try and start something solid so for now these are kind of space holders to get everybody kind of familiar with the format you're the second person to have an intro and outro song um i'll also be gathering some more samples so if any of you guys out there are listening to this far into the cast and you have like uh, uh, recommendations or you have like a cool sound effect or something like that that you want to send. I'm also looking for some kind of uh, musical cue transition for when we go from the start of the show to the news section to the discussion section. So if any of you guys are musicians out there and you're working on something, otherwise I'm just going to hop on my MPC and, and knock out some beats. So Ooh, beats. That's yeah. good. That's good. Like, hey. you, like you're going to do that with your mouth. No, no. Um, oh, okay. I don't, I don't know how far <laughs> you've ever dug back into my YouTube archive. But I actually got my start on YouTube um, teaching rappers how to make beats. Really? Yeah. I, so, I didn't go far enough. I'm yeah, going now. I used to run a recording studio way, way, way back in the day. When I was younger, I toured with a band called the Hot Carls. 
And uh, nice. we were like on the bottom rung of the warp tour and we did a bunch of stuff all over the United States. It was pretty cool. But um, nice. um, what did you play? What did you play? I, I was the lead singer and guitarist. Nice. Well, I'm a drummer, so we can we can jam, rock out, live right on. Yeah, yeah. We can play hot curl. I've actually um, right around me. Uh, you can't see it, but uh, there's two keyboards behind me. I have a digital trap set behind that. I have a couple of old analog synths, and then my bass cabinet and uh, my pods and my guitars and stuff are all scattered around the room. Uh, yeah, I've got my uh, blue sparkle drums behind me. Ooh, I have a set of. Um, I actually I bought one piece from each drum. So I have the red sparkle bass drum. I have the yellow sparkle low tom. I have a black sparkle snare drum. And then my mid tom is a green sparkle. And so nice. I had the, you know, not the entire rainbow, but enough colors to, you know, make it vibrant That's cool, when I was yeah. on stage. Yeah. All different, all different brands. Yeah, uh, all different brands. Nice. <laughs> I like the smaller bass drum sound. Yeah, that's so what I've got too. I went with a, a, a more petite. Um, it's a uh, from the Rockstar kit, I think. It's an it's yeah. twenty. And then yeah, yeah. Uh, my snare, I like the wider snare, but a little bit deeper, so it's less piccolo mm-hmm. sounding. So it's yeah. just like I I could have bought it all maybe somewhere. Somebody probably had a set like that, but instead I just chose to buy them individually so that I could oh, kind of get cool. the sound that I wanted. And yeah. I used to drum for a band as well. Uh, I was oh, in a really? band called um, uh, Awesome Dirt Bike, and uh, <laughs> and I drummed with those guys. Yeah, well, um, when I played with the Hot Carls, we we sometimes uh, we toured with other bands, but sometimes they would drop out of parts of the tour because they couldn't afford to continue on. So yeah. then we had to form bands out of our own band and like other members that we could gather that would be with us. <laughs> so we would just switch instruments and like. Awesome Dirt Bike was the same band as the Hot Carls, only I drummed instead of being the lead singer. The drummer sang <laughs> and played guitar, and, and the uh, gu- the bass player played guitar as well and then and keyboard. So it was like just rotating around the circle, you know. Well, it's a whole other podcast on instruments and, uh, you know, being in, in old uh, old bands and stuff. Yeah, and if um, when we go video on this, you'll see my MPC 1000 is what I <laughs> used to teach rappers how to make beats on. And yeah. that is what I'm using as the sampler to cue all the music and stuff because that mm-hmm. has a bunch of sample pads and I right. can set them to on off. And then it has two cue link faders on the side. So I can cue a sample and then I can fade every sample up and down with one of the cue link faders. And nice. so you can hit anything. And then because it's set to trigger off on another hit, I can hit a pad that I don't have anything assigned to and immediately turn any of the samples off. So like, for example, this, uh, this laugh track, as soon yeah. as I hit the other sample, it completely shuts off. Oh, it's gone. Or cool. I can just do the f- laugh track and then slowly bring it down and fade <laughs> it out. That's great. And so, That's and in really fact, cool. the song for the intro and the outro is just one of my old Hot Carl songs. And I went into the original tracks and took the audio or the vocals out of it and then um, remixed it for podcast format and threw it into a sample bank and just took a chunk where it like fades out at the end. Oh man, now everybody's going to be looking for that Hot, hot Carl album. Yeah, good luck finding that, man. That yeah. was released in like the time when records were a thing, yo. So Aren't they still? They're coming back strong up here. Yeah, it kind of makes a big circle. Yeah, everybody's releasing on, on vinyl, <laughs> vinyl now. It's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah, no more CDs, just uh, just your your digital copy and vinyl. Okay, this is one last tangent, then, then that's the end <laughs> of this secret part. But I was talking yeah. to a guy when I was in uh, New York um, earlier this year, and... Mm-hmm. 
he's like, you know, well, earlier last year, I guess, because now it's 2015. But yeah. he's like, dude, you know what's in right now? And I'm like, what? He digs into his backpack and he pulls out one of those bright yellow Sony uh, cassette players. <laughs> and he's like, I only do cassette, man. And I'm like, yeah. what? He's like, yeah, you want one of my mixtapes? And so oh, like man. he was a he was a DJ slash like uh, vocalist. He did some beats and stuff, but he was recording individually uh, all of his tracks that he had like saved up on his computer onto a tape Once. deck, and then <laughs> handing the tape deck out. And he'd somehow like I don't think he, it was quite automated, but he had one of those tape decks where it could switch from the front to the backside without right, having right. to pull it out. And he would hit record, and he had the audio set up so that it was exactly the length before the tape ran out. Oh man. So then like you hit record and you hit play at the same time on your computer and then it recorded all the way to the tape. And then he's like, yeah. And then I just play them on mute for a while. So that they get that kind of like natural sound. I'm like, what? You mean the <laughs> shitty sound of tape? Are you yeah, kidding yeah, exactly. me? That's the wrong, um, that's the wrong medium to revive. But yeah, that was, like, it, one of the worst. He was telling me, he's like, Oh, the, the tactile feel of like popping the tape oh, in there know. and like clicking it and stuff. He's like, and rewinding and fast forwarding. He's like, uh, I'm, I'm even thinking about buying a talk boy. I'm like, what? Oh, God. what? Did, did you say, did you say, Hey man, have you played with an eight track? Yeah. No joke. Yes. Get that. The tactile eight tracks, all the rage in Nebraska right now, the tactile feel of jamming it in and watching the, 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 the reels tape explode move around, yeah. out of the, out of the player. Now I actually, um, uh, oh, man, we keep continuing this, but I have a couple of, um, <laughs> of tape Sorry. decks here in the studio that are really old from when I was really young. And they were the very first, uh, eight track recorders that recorded onto actual <laughs> cassette tape. And they yeah. did that by like doing like half the, the heads or half sizes. So instead of using, because what you did with a four track recorder on tape was you use the stereo channels, one direction, and the stereo channels, the other direction to get it. Well, with the eight track recorder, it made the head half as big so that it actually split the left channel into two channels and the right channel into two channels. Oh really? And you could record eight tracks on it. But the issue was because the tape was so close together that if you had to re-record something more than three or four times, it started bleeding into the other oh, tracks right. Right. because, yeah, you know, yeah. you're magnetizing a little piece of tape and like the magnets exactly. close to the other side. So yeah. it would bleed into that section and like start screwing up like drum tracks and bass tracks yeah. and stuff like that. So what we do is we would get a VCR and this sounds weird, but like we would yeah. record all the drums onto the eight track tape recorder and yeah. we would get it, get the song in one take. And then we would hook it up to a VCR, which is a digital recorder. Oh man, this is amazing. And we would record onto the tape, the audio from the eight track and mix down the drums. And then once oh, it was okay. on a mixed down uh, format, we would use that to record back to one track on the, uh, on the eight track recorder itself and then record on the other seven tracks or vocals and everything else. And right. if you ever screwed up, you still had a clean take of the drums. And a lot of times we would do a clean mix down of the guitar and the bass and the keys uh, with the drums included. And that way, when you mix down to that, you could mix back and then you had up to uh, six tracks for vocals. So because I used to do like multiple vocals where I'd sing like four tracks or four times over the top of myself. And so having that, like that was our trick is we would like mix down to VHS tapes and then mix back up again. Oh, that's smart. Like early, early, like, like, yeah, this is like, stat. this is like early nineties when like <laughs> yeah. a, a blackface, uh, eight track, uh, dat recorder was like, yeah. uh, that was the thing, 1200 or $2,000. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now I, they uh, can't even give them away. They're like 80 uh, bucks. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, no, everybody thinks they're VCRs. Yeah, I know. I still have them. <laughs> um, I have like a, a milk crate full of of uh, ADAT tapes from yeah. when I was younger, when I used to run the recording studio, because that's yeah. what our backup medium yeah. was, ADAT tapes. And yeah. like, I still have them. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with them. I don't have anything that'll even play them anymore. Up yeah. until recently, I had an M-Audio um, Firewire 1814 that had at least optical ADAT in, but I don't yeah. even have an ADAT player to like, you know, accept that sort of thing. Uh-oh. Yeah. So I don't know. Is, is there anything valuable on those? Uh, nah. Like a, I mean, a bunch of indie bands from like, oh, oh, oh and stuff you. like that. No. I mean, some oh. of my stuff's on there, but I moved that to digital. Um, yeah. When I upgraded the studio before i shut it down i went to one of those hd 24s which yep. was the next version from the because uh, it went the blackface and then it went to like the grayish colored ones right. and then they had like some white edition ones and then they released the 24 track hard drive recorder that used a proprietary hard yeah. drive format to record yep. onto yep. and so as soon as i got that i took all of my stuff and i took my four four eight tracks and synced them to the 24 track and then recorded everything onto that and nice. then dropped it all onto my computer. And I've been toting around from like a 40 gig hard drive to an 80 gig to like a one terabyte. And, you know, <laughs> and I mean, this computer I'm on right now still has like 95% of the tracks I've ever recorded. They're not mixed or anything. I'm, I have to pull them up in sonar and edit them, but they're there. That's, that's good, man. That's, that's, that's the, uh, the master archiver at work. You, yeah, you kind of have to, especially data I have friends like man. that. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, that was really well, cool. That was, that, yeah, was, that was way off. Sorry, Way DJ. off topic. That's okay. Sometimes it's fun to get into that stuff. Like, not too many it people, is. like, drag me into a conversation like that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to cut the tape, and that's